don't go it alone, especially with something like Calais. We learned along the way how many people we had to bring along with us. And we're still bringing people along with us. But I think it is probably one of the most important pieces, never underestimating how much you need to do to actually bring people along with you, for people to understand and trust that it's going to work. I'm Claudia Williams, and this is The Other 80, a podcast about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. We know that only about 20% of overall health is determined by traditional medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, access to nutritious food, our relationships with each other, safe and affordable housing, and so much more. In January 2022, the California Advancing and Innovating Medi-Cal Program, or CalAIM, launched with the goal of scaling whole person health across the state. It's a multi-year initiative that is both broad and deep. It provides comprehensive care management and social supports in areas like housing and food, but it's also tackling behavioral health redesign, payment reform, integration of mental health and physical health, and reentry services. Today, I'm delighted to welcome J.C. Cooper to the show to give us a deeper dive into both the work happening on the ground and the lessons learned in the years since the program launched. J.C.'s the perfect person for this discussion. She has served as California's Medicaid Director and Chief Deputy Director for Healthcare Programs since January 2020. So please welcome J.C. Cooper to The Other 80. There's so much that's been done in California. CalAIM is a very expansive program. So what I think we'll be doing is first touching on the basic kind of components of the program. Some listeners are from California, some aren't. So have them kind of get the one-on-one about how it works. And then we'll uh, talk about some of the implementation issues you and your partners are experiencing. But I wanted to kind of go back in time and get you to talk a little bit about what were some of the insights, facts, and stories that really inspired the development of CalAIM before it was launched? So I I think the biggest factor was the whole person care pilots in California. So we had been piloting the concept of whole person care since about 2016 um, in California. And we had a number of counties piloting not just your kind of historical enhanced care management or complex case management pieces, but they were providing a large number of wrap services in addition to that care coordination that really hit the nail in regards to additional services needed to really impact someone with certain other social factors driving their ability to be healthy. But, you know, at the end of the day, they were taking that core concept of coordination for complex individuals, and they were wrapping these services around it. And we were seeing just really great results come out of it. We were seeing, you know, what you would expect, reductions of inpatient care or emergency room visits. We were seeing people connecting with whether it's substance use disorder treatment or, uh, you know, increased touches on the primary care side, 
um, an overall cost decrease. And so we were really looking at those whole person care pilots. And the nice thing is when you have pilots, everybody's approaching it a little bit different. It's also the bad thing about pilots because everybody's approaching something a little different. So we had to really learn from people as large as Los Angeles County doing multiple initiatives to smaller counties like Placer who were testing very similar concepts but seeing similar results that we could see in really large urban areas. And so we were able to really kind of connect some of those dots of what could work for a statewide policy. So let's um, talk a little bit about CalAIM. So CalAIM is the global description of the program that California has put in place, which has a variety of components. So I thought if you could describe for our listeners what are the major components of CalAIM, certainly ECM and social supports, but any other pieces you want to describe? Yeah, so you are right. I mean, CalAIM is meant to be a multi-year initiative. We often said it was a a five to seven year roadmap of comprehensive changes. It's really meant to identify and manage comprehensive needs of our beneficiaries, everything from preventative services to complex services like connecting someone with community supports. I think the other unique thing about CalAIM before I kind of go into the big buckets is it's meant to kind of attack it in different ways. It attacks it in both broad-based delivery system changes, adding benefits, payment reform. So each of the areas where it is a very comprehensive proposal, but it has many tentacles to it is what I would say. Um, Often people don't understand how rich CalAIM on a proposal basis it is. But we'll hit on some of the core pieces that you're mentioning that are kind of the the cornerstones uh, of CalAIM. I think that one of the biggest pieces is um, our population health management framework. So the idea behind POP Health is to make sure that even though the system may be siloed, the um, that we're integrating it in a way that we're seeing improved outcomes across our systems in California. So that's kind of what we consider our foundation. Um, The next is enhanced care management. This is not your uh, phone-based care management program. This is you meet people where they are, in their home, on the street, in a shelter, um, in a long-term care facility. Uh, This is a a community-based, face-to-face, high-intensity benefit. Um, And then there are what we call the community supports. Um, And community supports is the way we've done it in California. There's 14 currently approved community supports. Um, with different various federal funding authorities. So we won't get into too much of that, but it spans anywhere from what we call our housing bundle, housing transition services, um, housing deposits and sustaining services. So once someone's housed, keeping them housed. Um, It covers recruitative care. Uh, And so recruitative care is a uh, a 90 day transition from an inpatient or an institutional level care, skilled nursing facility or a correctional facility um, or also an emergency room to kind of uh, allow somebody to to heal, um, receive services during that time. Same thing with short-term post-hospitalization, but up to six months. So you can tag those and have up to nine months of services, which is great. It also includes things like caregiver respite services and paying for someone to transition from a skilled nursing facility to their home or into an assisted living environment with the needed wrap payment services to keep someone residing safely in the community. It also touches medically um, tailored meals, um, sobering centers, asthma remediation. It's really a list of comprehensive services that touch on um, those, uh, you know, social drivers of health that could impact somebody's ability to be healthy 
And we also feel oftentimes, depending on what services we're offering, um, can change the trajectory of someone's life. And so we consider it a core of what we learned from our whole person care pilots. It's not just about great care coordination across various systems. It's actually paying for some of those systems and, and supports that are needed to actually help somebody achieve their best health outcome. Um, and for some people, that includes housing. And, and there's clear demonstration uh, research that shows that. So community supports. We also did some updates on our dental benefits. And the next one I'll kind of flag is we did a suite of changes in behavioral health. We updated our criteria for uh, behavioral health in California. We split between mild to moderate and what we call specialty mental health. We um, revised some of our criteria for access to specialty mental health. We have completely redesigned our documentation expectations in California. We had very old regs that just made it extremely administratively burdensome for providers to, to be able to document and meet the expectations. We're rolling out payment reform this July for our behavioral health colleagues. So really a, a, a wholesale comprehensive look at behavioral health um, in California across both mental health and substance use uh, services, looking at documentation, payment reform, transitions of care between systems, et cetera. So a, a huge comprehensive piece there. And the next phase that we're looking at is administrative integration. So really integrating in a very real way mental health and SUD in California, not just at the administrative level, but also at the clinical level where possible. And so that's the next big piece we're focused there. And then we also have a very comprehensive focus on getting to manage long-term services and supports, as well as uh, making sure our dual individuals have a true integrated pathway. I'm, I'm almost feeling like, you know, I feel like you guys should have a break now for a few months. <laughs> That's a lot, but I know there's no way to do that because you're implementing. Going back to that, you were designing and imagining this new approach and as a federal state partnership, that involved a lot of conversations with your CMS colleagues. Some of the things you're describing were implementable without demonstration authorities. Other things required 1115 or 1915 waivers. Without getting into the, the minutia of all that, what were some of the most important or heated conversations in that negotiation with CMS? I think by far the, the longest conversation was on community supports and on uh, the justice uh, waiver. So for community supports, we were the first state who came in with a comprehensive list of what we call in lieu of services under federal regs that technically is just a contract amendment and falls under managed care authority. Um, and, uh, you know, but we came in with a comprehensive list in, in, a, in a comprehensive benefit. So uh, negotiated um, for quite some time on that. The sticking points come down to, you know, we had to demonstrate to CMS that everything on our list was medically appropriate and cost effective, right? Especially because we were using in lieu of authority. It's in lieu of something more costly, an inpatient stay, an emergency room visit, a skilled nursing facility, or it was preventing an inpatient stay, skilled nursing facility stay, or, you know, ER visit. And so we had to pull extensive literature review. We had a look at those pilots and, and have them pull outcomes demonstrating the impact and really find the nexus between health and how these services were going to improve and or have demonstrated to improve someone's health or prevent longer term costs in the program. 
Um, so that was a big negotiation. And we did that for every single one of those 14 community supports. The other part that we did is we had to, you know, we were essentially asking uh, for someone to stay in a recuperative care center or a short-term post-hospitalization and have that fully funded meals, room and board, the whole and services all in one. So that is why two of the 14 community supports is not approved just in a contract or mentioned in our 1915 B waiver. It is in the 1115 demonstration. And, uh, and that was to get the authority to have the expenditure authority to pay for those services. So that was another big, you know, piece. I think the other thing is this is the first time where you were seeing kind of this broad of a list of services that really has a a direct intersection with home and community-based services, things typically approved, um, you know, in 1915C waivers or others really going a little bit more upstream and allowing for it to be available for someone in a preventive way, in a more upstream way, and not directly tied to some of those historical institutional levels of care, right? So you really had, that's why it was so important to demonstrate that nexus with medically appropriate services. So I think those were by far the biggest conversations. We also argued that they were budget neutral, uh, which is really important. So we had to demonstrate if you pay, if you have someone in an inpatient bed, it's a lot less expensive than in a recuperative care bed, <laughs> right? And so if someone can step down, in fact, one day in an inpatient bed probably could pay for two weeks in a recuperative care bed, depending on the rate and the, and the level of care someone's in, Right. So, um, you know, we had to spell all that out for CMS, and we did a lot of back and forth to demonstrate that. And then on the justice, obviously, that's just huge. You know, a, a big initiative uh, allowed for through the Support Act and thinking through that level of complex policy. Um, you know, we actually really enjoyed uh, working on that with CMS. It was a, a partnership in regards to the thinking, the modeling and, and where we landed, and we were um, really happy when that was approved so that we can wrap our arms around it and start implementing it in California. So hopefully that helps. That's great. You just celebrated the first year of implementation. What would you say have been your biggest learnings over the last year? Yeah. Um, to say this work is is complex is an understatement. I think that it's really getting people familiar with a new benefit. And it's not a, a new benefit that's known to healthcare. Um, it is genuinely a new um, benefit that managed care plans are trying to understand the parameters of the benefit, the eligibility of the benefit, um, how to authorize the benefit. You know, for a managed care plan, they can download evidence-based practices on how to authorize a surgery. <laughs> you know, nurses and doctors are trained in regards to medical necessity, and you should see these types of tests or these types of things to indicate somebody needs X treatment or X surgery, or to authorize and to say, yes, that is a good investment now that we've seen X, Y, or Z. There was no blueprint. There was nothing to download, Right. Uh, we had taken multiple pilots. We had gone through a year and a half of extensive stakeholder engagement to get them in the best place we could. But it's a lot of learning. So it's a lot of learnings for providers. It's a lot of learnings for plans. You know, the amount of trainings and webinars and guidance documents and um, roundtables and feedback loops that we have had for this policy far exceeds anything we've ever done in California. Uh, and we still have a long way to go. In fact, we just finished 
a huge provider listening uh, session where we were flooded with great information from both plans, providers, others. Um, And now we are rolling up our sleeves to tweak some of our policies from the first year to fine tune them to understand where, um, you know, we potentially had um, gaps or where we need to provide more guidance, where we're seeing too big of a variation in regards to um, how managed care plans implemented this. I joke with my team, flour, baking powder, salt, sugar, eggs, milk, butter, regular ingredients. But they can make pancakes, biscuits, waffles. If you don't, I mean, all of the same ingredients can get very different outcomes if somebody doesn't know what they're making. Um, And so uh, where we are now is, okay, we started with a list of ingredients. Now we need to be a little bit more specific in regards to the measurements, uh, the order of those ingredients uh, to actually get to the same outcome uh, with with those same ingredients. And so that's the fine-tuned tuning we're doing in 2023 uh, to kind of get there uh, and and move things in a better place. Are there any specific examples where you got a lot of feedback in that process? Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, the, we did not, uh, which we don't ever, we don't, we don't provide guidance to our managed care plans in regards to what they need to collect for a authorization of service. It's nothing we've, we've never done that. It's not our, typically our role. We contract with plans who do that. And we give guardrails around how fast they have to review them. So we stuck within those same guardrails. What we're seeing is that um, because it's new, the variation for one provider who can have four contracts with four different managed care plans, it's just too different. Uh, So we're stepping in in a way uh, where normally we would rely on others to do that evidence based. We are going to have to kind of probably standardize more of that as we get uh, through these first few years so that providers don't have such an administrative burden of each plan approaching it a little bit differently. Um, I think that's a a real tangible example of things that we will be uh, modifying in the future. So maybe just spend a minute or two talking about the way managed care is organized in in California, because I think that has incredibly important implications for how this is rolling out within the state. Sure. So we have um, a few models, as we call it, of managed care in California. Um, So we have what we call local um, plans, essentially um, born kind of long ago through county systems. So typically have, uh, you know, local routes, for lack of better description, and they aren't subject to procurement. Um, I think that's the biggest piece, right? They are local entities. The idea is that they are connected to the local, um, you know, community. They are engaged in the community. They are very active um, in the community. And we have a large number of local plans in California, um, you know, including in large of, uh, you know, counties like Los Angeles um, to to smaller, smaller counties like San Mateo. So it, it varies. And it is an election of the local boards of supervisors. Um, and, it, you know, you have to go to an ordinance to essentially be able to be a, a local plan. So we have local plans. And then the rest is provided by commercial plans. So it is it, it's different here because when we procure uh, plans in California, we're only procuring commercial plans. We are not procuring local plans. Um, and, uh, and so there is less a turnover if you were to change a plan in certain counties, depending on, um, on the outcomes, if that's helpful. So that is definitely, uh, what we do. Managed care plans, um, dominantly most physical health services are the responsibility of the managed care plans. 
when it comes to behavioral health. They're only responsible for what we call mild to moderate um, mental health services, and then only expert screening for SUD. Everything else is carved out to our county partners who provide specialty mental health and all substance use disorder services. So that is carved out. Um, we have a, a handful of other things that used to be carved out in Calain. They st we standardized many of those. For example, we carved in um, organ transplants to our managed care plans. We carved in um, long-term care uh, for our managed care plans. This model has important implications for rolling out um, whole person care efforts in a couple of respects. One, there's less churn in most counties than exists in other states. And that means if you're a plan and you're building what is very new capacity, you can have some faith that you will continue to deliver those services to roughly the same population, maybe not exactly, but roughly the same population. So you can start to see the impact of that work. They're not switching to another plan, switching to another model as frequently. And also that means that um, in most counties, you don't have 10 plans trying to build the same relationships. In other states, that is not true. And, and I think as we have interviews with some other state leaders, we might see somewhat different models as a result of that. Um, you've touched on this in talking about PHM and other aspects of the program, but I think this rollout really means a very different set of expectations for plans than you've had before. And I, I'd love for you to describe a little bit, where are you expecting more? Where are you expecting different? And what does that, what does that mean for a plan for the capabilities they need to now develop? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really true. I mean, it's just about breaking down those barriers of new partners, typically community-based organizations or people that aren't used to billing Medi-Cal. Um, and so that does come with a higher level of expectation. They are going to have to train more. They are now infusing, I, I call it institutionalizing CalAIM in the system. You know, they have to do a lot more provider education. It's not like just, you know, contracting with another provider. They're contracting and then they have to educate primary care providers, other enhanced care management providers of what are the services available and what are the criteria for those services for people learning that all at the same time, that is a massive undertaking uh, for them to truly embed that into referral processes. For a doctor to screen someone, identify something and refer for housing is not something they do today. That doesn't happen overnight. That you have to change systems and processes and, and everything in the way that you are digesting information and training your entire healthcare system. Uh, you have to talk to emergency rooms so that if you have someone, they know how to, you know, get those referrals so that the continuum can actually work because the continuum works best if you catch someone in the moment. Uh, well, healthcare is not always great at that for the record. Uh, and so uh, it requires a lot more partnership, a lot more intention, um, and a lot more communication between plans, providers, and uh, those uh, individuals that they're bringing on to do it. So it's a huge lift. Um, it's why we joke with everyone, you know, give us some grace uh, as we roll this out, because it is uh, really transforming and what we call breaking down the historical walls of healthcare um, in ways that we think will be really impactful, uh, but it's not going to happen overnight. So I think those are the biggest pieces. The other thing is plans can only be successful at this if they truly embed themselves into these existing systems. So we are incentivizing plans to 
um, not only partner with those community-based organizations who've been doing this for, for decades, um, but embed themselves in the continuums of, of care, for example, in the housing and homelessness footprint within their local group where they may have not previously had a seat at those tables. They need to raise their hand and say they want a seat at those tables to truly in infuse themselves into the decision making, the planning, the connection of individuals, making sure it's not just housing navigation, but how are they making sure people are connected to those vouchers? They don't have to do it themselves, but connecting along that continuum is really, really important. So community engagement is huge uh, for the for whole person care um, type policies to be successful. One of the questions I experienced when I was back at the very beginning of Calame was plans that basically said, you know, it's such a small percentage of our population who's going to be eligible for ECM. We just can't divert the level of energy needed for this because then we have other areas where we're broadly accountable for quality of care. We're broadly accountable for turning around authorizations within a certain amount of time. That was a year ago. So things may have shifted, but I'm wondering for those plans that are are saying this is hard it, we're not sure this is sustainable we're not sure we can actually make make this move a do you still feel some of that is going on and b what are your mechanisms to have accountability and performance management around some of those issues yeah so i, I don't hear much or any of that now i think the reason is once you start you know, hearing about other people's pilots is one thing. Doing it yourself is a totally different thing. And the thing that I have found very um, uh, exciting, maybe is the right word, is that when I go to talk to plans, they now have their own stories of people where they have changed the trajectory of someone's life, or they've been involved in that action. They all have patient and beneficiary stories of their own now, and they understand um, the value of these investments. Of course, it's only a, a, a portion of the lives that they serve, um, but many medical pieces that are complex and or complex diagnoses are only a small set of people. The other thing is almost everything here, if done to fidelity, results in cost savings as well. So every managed care plan is looking for that beautiful intersection between medical appropriateness and something that's actually going to ultimately bend that cost curve. And we have a lot of data showing that. And we were even happy to see the, the recent whole person care independent evaluation demonstrated cost savings, even in the aggregate for people in these types of programs, right? So they kind of need that driver as well. But that is what's driven many interventions in healthcare for a long time that ultimately um, yield those different pieces. And so I think it went from a concept they understood, um, were looking at from afar, to now doing themselves and understanding the impact, not just on the overall pieces, but people's actual lives. And I think that's the difference too. We're not just talking about any commercial plan or any insurance. We're talking about Medicaid. Medicaid managed care plans. Our job is to care for someone for a moment in their life or for the rest of their life. We we get the whole spectrum of, of people. And I think, um, you know, in California, we make it very clear we are looking for partners that want to be a Medi-Cal managed care plan, not just a managed care plan. 
because to us, there's a fundamental difference in the people that we serve. And so I think they're starting to kind of see it. Um, but I, I agree with you. Uh, everyone was looked at the mountain in front of them um, in, in 2021 of what they had to build and or do. And I think we're, we're very overwhelmed, but now they're, they're getting their, you know, it under their feet and they're, they're moving a little faster. <laughs> and it's, I think it's so lovely to hear that because that is ultimately what fills our cup back up, right? Is we're doing this really important hard work. And when you start to see the impact of that and the person whose life is really made better by that, I think it, <laughs> it's just very renewing in, in that moment. Let's um switch gears. And I know we just have a few minutes left. This time has flown by. Let's talk about the justice initiative, because I think, as you said, this is the first of its kind in the nation. It came out of a deep partnership between yourselves and, and CMS. And just to, for listeners, for the background, when someone goes to jail or prison, they lose Medicaid. And where that becomes really challenging is when they're released, because the highest cause of mortality when someone's released is a drug overdose. We have many people, up to a third of folks who have mental health issues. And there's just a lot of risk and a lot of challenges for that population that we've seen in really horrible uh, statistics around uh, death, overdose, mental health issues, homelessness, et cetera. So talk a little bit about this initiative that was just approved in January. What is it? What services is it providing? How is it going to be a model for the rest of the nation? Sure. So um, essentially, we have done a, a soup to nuts, what we're calling justice initiative. It includes everything from screening on um, anyone who comes into a correctional setting for Medi-Cal. We have about 80% of individuals in incarcerated settings are, are eligible for, for Medi-Cal. So it starts with screening for Medi-Cal enrollment if they're not already enrolled. Um, and then we go through a process of screening them for um, the the 90-day in-reach services. So one of the biggest things that we were approved is to cover um, 90 days of what we call in-reach or services while they are incarcerated in prisons, jails, and juvenile facilities. So all of those settings. Um, and uh, when it comes to adults, we have you know a pretty broad um, eligibility definition, but I think almost anyone, <laughs> to be honest with you, falls dominantly within it. But, uh, you know, and for kids, there is no criteria for the in-reach services. All anyone under the age of 21 in a juvenile facility uh, would be eligible for all of the in-reach services. We are covering anything from screenings to treatment. We will be covering um, uh, medication assisted treatment, um, all medications, lab, radiology uh, services. The idea is to diagnose, if not diagnose, stabilize somebody prior to that reentry. So enough of the services really wrapped in that way. And then, of course, um, case management, as you would imagine, because the idea is around um, that stabilization and building that trusted relationship while someone's incarcerated to really inform what we call a smooth reentry into into the community. Upon release, they would also get a full prescription uh, for whatever number of days. If it's a prescription that can only have a 30-day prescription or up to 90, whatever is tied to it, they would get that prescription and all DME upon release as well. Um, in California, we took it a little further in state statute. We also mandate what we call a warm handoff 
to behavioral health. So anyone um, that we've identified through this screening process and stabilization process, or anyone, for example, who started MAT uh, while they are incarcerated, they would be, um, they are mandated to have a warm handoff from the incarcerated setting into the community to our county behavioral health partners um, who provide those services. Um, and that includes county behavioral health providers when possible coming into the facility to uh, build that relationship and transition uh, smoothly. Um, uh, and so that is one piece. We also will be discharging people from the incarcerated setting into enhanced care management. Uh, so anyone who's kind of eligible who has these diagnoses, we've done some treatment planning for, um, they will be eligible for um, enhanced care management for that justice population. Um, and working with people who are experienced in working with individuals um, uh, that have been justice involved and, uh, and really focused on that trajectory. The idea there is making sure we're connecting somebody who is leaving incarceration. We've been able to stabilize them while they were incarcerated instead of um, discharging them to the street. Maybe they were homeless prior to that. Discharging them to one of those recuperative care settings or short-term post-hospitalization settings so that we have an opportunity to glide them into the community, still continue that care that they need to recover uh, and to have a smoother community transition, maybe hopefully get them connected to housing navigation services or uh, a system of care that they can go into. So that's the ultimate goal is really it's those 90-day in-reach services with a criteria for eligibility, as well as a list of services and supports that we cover, all focused on warm linkages in that community reentry um, and doing whatever we can to reduce all the pieces you said, whether it's, you know, someone showing up to an emergency room shortly after um, because they didn't have meds, feel really sick, get admitted, happens very often, uh, higher suicide rates uh, two weeks after release, higher overdose rates two weeks after release. The idea is if we can if we can break that pattern with a more coordinated reentry into the community, uh, we are hoping we can improve health outcomes for a large number of some of our most vulnerable members in, in our communities. With just a few minutes left, I want to transition to the questions we ask every guest. The first is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? You've had an amazing career. What's something that's really stuck with you that was a hard-won lesson? What I would say is don't go it alone. Uh, so what I mean by that, especially with something like Calame, we had to, and, um, and I think we learned along the way, how many people we had to bring along with us. Uh, and we're still bringing people along with us. Um, and, uh, you know, I joke with the team often that if it's easy, we're probably not making enough change. <laughs> I bet they love you for that, right? Oh, I know, right? <laughs> um, but with that level of change in a state the size of California is probably one of the biggest things that even with all of the training and the discussions and the listening sessions that we did, we still have a large number of people we need to bring along with us. How we do that, we're tweaking constantly. Um, but I think it is probably one of the most important pieces for, you know, um, policy transformation at this size, complexity, and level of um, never underestimating how much you need to do to actually bring people along with you, for them to truly understand what you're trying to achieve, for um, people to understand and trust that it's going to work. Um, and 
and be willing to kind of tweak it along the ways. I mean, that's the other thing that we have to do um, because because it is big and complex and being willing to never just take a moment in time and walk away from the policy, but really do it. So I think um, that may be an overly uh, simplified piece, but I think it's often missed. Um, you know, we don't get to just work in our bubbles and and roll it out. We have to bring so many sectors and people along with us. Um, and this one was uh, put that on on steroids, for lack of a better description. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why we appreciate uh, things like this, even this podcast, just educating people on what this is, why it's important, how valuable it is. Um, and while it may not be perfect today, um, the impact it could have on people's lives is significant. Great. Yeah. JC, thank you so much for joining. It's been a great conversation and I appreciate how busy your schedule is. And thank you for taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much. After this conversation, I was left with two big questions. First, how can state governments shape and build the ecosystem for whole person health? while recognizing that on-the-ground implementation cannot be managed from the capital. Second, how can we ensure policy does not move faster than our ability to implement and embed? I hope you will join the conversation. Share your thoughts with me on Twitter. My handle is Claudia Williams. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information on Calame and our guest, J.C. Cooper. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. Mm-hmm.